Hi folks, it's Rabbi Sharon Brous here. You are listening to Ikar's podcast where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our guest speakers, our teachers, anything we think worth listening to that we can capture, you can hear right here. Thank you so much for being with us. This is the story of a young man who was headstrong, who was certain that he knew what was right, who with some encouragement from his mother decided that he had every right to deceive his brother and his father. And when he began to realize that there were consequences for such actions, he did the only thing he knew how to do, which is he skipped town. He ran away. This is the story of Yaakov, our ancestor. Don't get buried in the text yet. I'll bring you there in a couple of minutes. Yaakov, who flees after taking the blessing of the firstborn away from the rightful inheritor of that blessing, his brother Esau. Yaakov, our forefather Jacob, who was a deeply flawed human, who did only what he knew how to do. And Yaakov, who goes off to Lavan's home, his uncle, who gets married four times over, who has many, many children, and who recognizes 22 years after he left that it's time for him to come home. The story that we read this week in Parshat Vayishlach is the story of Yaakov's return. Yaakov knows that he did the wrong thing many years ago. And I suspect on some level that his return might be a reflection of his profound hope that maybe Esau will have forgotten. Maybe he'll have moved on. Maybe he won't be held accountable for his cruel and deceptive behavior, his manipulations and his lies from years before. But as he gets close to home, he sends melachim, he sends messengers or angels ahead who check out the situation in front of him and come back to report to Yaakov that Esav is in fact on his way toward Yaakov and he comes with 400 men, which can mean to Yaakov only one thing, that Esav is intent on killing him, which he has every right to do based on Yaakov's behavior toward him years before. So what does Yaakov do? I want to bring you to the first text on our study sheet today because you may have noticed as we were reading through the parsha this very strange moment that leads up to the very famous moment in which Yaakov is wrestling with an angel. In the middle of the night, Yaakov wakes up and he takes his two wives his two maidservants, and his 11 children. I don't know what he does with Dina. And he crosses over the ford of the Yabok. He crosses over a small uh, stream of water. They're about to cross over the Jordan, which is a very large passage of water. And after he takes them across the stream, then he sent across all of his possessions as well. They are in the dark of night in the middle of the night, on the cusp of an encounter that Yaakov imagines could be, and very well should be, a deadly encounter with his foe, his brother Esau. 
And in the middle of the night, he gets up and he moves everybody and everything across a stream of water. And then he finds himself alone, Yaakov Levado, alone on the other side of this stream. And the rabbis try to understand what exactly happened here. And I just want to thank um, a rabbi teacher of mine, a teacher of my daughter Eva's, Rabbi Yitzchak Et Shalom, who um, teaches such beautiful Torah. And he, uh, and he brings the Rashbam here. Um, I want to share with you this interpretation that comes from Rashi's grandson, the Rashbam, about what's actually going on here. The Rashbam, unlike uh, all of the other commentators who look at this passage and try to understand it, he says that actually what's happening here is that Yaakov gets up in the middle of the night and strangely moves all of his children and all of his wives across the water because he intends to run out of town like he did last time things got rough. He intends to change direction so that he can avoid meeting with Asav. And the idea here is that when you, when you run away by water, it's a very smart way to escape because people can't track your footsteps when you travel across the water. You just disappear without a trace. If that's the case, says Rashbam, then who is this Ish, the angel, that comes to find Yaakov when he is alone on the other side of the water, having sent forward his wives and his children, who is the Ish who grabs Yaakov and starts to wrestle with him in the famous episode of, the, of this, this mysterious presence wrestling with Yaakov all night long? And here Rashbam tells us that that Ish is actually an angel who is engaging Yaakov all night long so that he cannot escape Esau, okay? There are lots of different interpretations of who the angel might be and what the angel's purpose might be. But Rashbam's is so, is so interesting. It's actually an angel of God who is there to stop Yaakov from disappearing. It's his muscle memory that when things get bad and when he's scared, he runs away in the other direction. He prepares to do it in his conscious mind. He moves his family away. And then the angel comes and grabs him in the night and holds on to his body all night long saying, I will not let you go because you have something that you need to face in the morning. There is a truth that you need to confront and your instinct is to run away from the truth, but you can't. You must confront this truth. I want to think for a moment about what would have happened had Yaakov actually escaped in the night. Had the angel not caught up with him and wrestled with him and held his body down until the dawn emerged and the confrontation with Esau could take place. What would have happened? Surely Yaakov could have found another way to re-enter the land. This was a fairly decent amount of land. He could have assumed that he could live very well in Canaan and maybe never even run into his brother again. They didn't have find my friends, okay? There was no GPS tracker on him. They were living across a vast swath of land. He could have assumed that he could get away with never confronting Esau again. But he would forever have to live with Damocles' sword over his head, right? 
every morning when he would get up and go out with his many sheep, he would have to worry, is Asaph going to appear on the other side of this hill and kill me as he has every right to? And more importantly, I think for us in this moment, while he could very well have avoided the confrontation with Asaph, there's a sense that, that he and his descendants could never have fulfilled their own destiny had he not gotten up the next morning to confront the demons of his own past and make some kind of resolution with the person whom he had so terribly wronged 22 years ago, a lifetime ago. So after 22 years and after a long night of wrestling and suffering, Yaakov realizes that he can't escape, that he has to confront his past. There's simply no way around it. And so he wakes up after the dawn has come and he approaches Esau and he's making offering after offering. Maybe you noticed it in the text. She goats and he goats and ewes and rams. The, the offerings are called, each offering is called mincha, right? Like our offering, the afternoon service. So he's making all of these offerings. And then finally, something extraordinary happens. Kachna et birchati. Kachna et birchati, Yaakov says to Esav. Please take my blessing, which I'm giving to you, he says to his brother. Take my blessing. All of these things that I am giving you are not just gifts. They are actually a blessing. What is the reason that Yaakov needed to flee from Esav in the first place? What did he take from his brother? Took a blessing. And now, all these years later, though every instinct in his body says, run in the other direction, he realizes the only way that I and he and we have a future is if I give back to him the thing that I took from him so many years ago. And Esau's so interesting in this story. I love Esau in this parsha. Esau tries to decline the blessing. He tries to decline the gift. And he says to them, brother, thank you, but I don't need what you have to give me. I'm actually okay. I have enough. The same man who 22 years earlier was saying, Barcheni gamaniavi, Abba, give me something. You can't give me nothing. Now, after all of these years and all of this growth, Esau says, it's okay. I don't need what you have to give me. But Yaakov has to give it. That's what's at the essence of this story. Yaakov has to give it not only for Esau's sake, but actually for his own. And this reminds me of a, of a, a text, uh, some of the laws of Takanata um, Shavim, the laws of like, returning things that have been taken. And, and, and what we learn in the Gemara, and you can look on page, uh, on page two of your shore sheet, there's a really interesting, hold the Yaakov story for a moment and, and, and bear with me. In the Torah, it says that if you steal something from someone else, you must return the object that you stole. But the rabbis understand that if we hold people to such a standard that they have to return the stolen object, they'll never make tshuva. They'll never admit what they stole because they don't want to have to give it back. So instead, the rabbis prioritize acknowledgement and tshuva over the actual return, right? But even still, it says in Bavakama, even still, you should return it anyway. Even if you don't have to, by the letter of the law, you should return it anyway. Why? 
It's not only for the person who deserves to have the thing back that was taken. Lama machzirin, why do we return it? Let's say it's yadesh So that the offender can actually be okay with God. So that the offender can actually be made whole. It's as important that the person who did wrong is able to find a path toward healing as it is that the person's been offended is able to find a path toward healing. And that's what's happening in this parasha. That Yaakov, who would just as happily run in the other direction, leaving his family, his four wives, and at least 11 of his children to be at the whim of Esau and his army. Yaakov wants to run away. But at least according to Rashbam, the angel says, no, you have to confront this. And it's not even because Esau needs you to. It's because you need you to. Because for you to ever be okay, you actually have to confront the past. Now, maybe you can understand why of all of the interpretations of this incredible story, this is the one that strikes me this week. At the end of a week in which Julius Jones, a young black man who was 19 years old, when he was at home having dinner with his parents and his sister, when a murder happened on the other side of town, and he was arrested and he was convicted for the murder of a white man. And he sat on death row in Oklahoma for 19 years until, thank God, he was granted clemency just an hour and a half or two hours before he was going to be murdered by the state of Oklahoma this week. And yet, even still, he's not the only person sitting on death row. Oklahoma fully intends to murder six more people in the course of the next six months, despite the fact that already 2,000 years ago, our rabbis understood that the limitations of human judgment must necessarily translate into limitations on human power. Because our rabbis knew that any judicial system, any criminal justice system would be vulnerable to human weakness. That when lives are on the line, there's simply too much at stake to take a risk. Because already 2,000 years ago, our rabbis were saying that they could not bear to live in a society in which we, flawed human beings, with flawed legal systems that are just wrecked with bias, might inadvertently take the life of an innocent person. In which our rabbis already 2,000 years ago worried not only about the innocent being executed, but about any human being created in God's own image, becoming the victim of a justice system that was designed to protect and to defend human life. And yet the death penalty remains legal in this country in the year 2021 in 27 states. This is what happens when history remains unresolved. Look at the three trials that happened this week in the United States. The white supremacists on trial in Charlottesville who spouting their theory of the great replacement brought into the consciousness, the idea of a white genocide, the idea that Jews and black people and Muslims and gay people were trying to destroy this country and to replace them and make no place for them. Look at the, 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 the trial of the murderers of Ahmad Arbery in Brunswick, Georgia. 
Ahmad Arbery, a black man whose very presence as he jogged down the street was seen by the perpetrators as a threat to their sense of safety. An unarmed black man jogging down the street. And look, of course, at the acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse. You know, we have said here in the last couple of days, in the last day since this acquittal came down, that while many people have been surprised by what happened, in some way we should not be surprised at all because we know history in this country. We know and we understand that vigilante violence in order to prop up and support white supremacy has been sanctioned by the laws and by the courts generation after generation. We can be disgusted, but we should not be surprised. There's one aspect of this that I keep thinking of though. I keep thinking of the way that many people pointed out over the course of this trial, the way that the judge was looking at the defendant like he was his own son. And I have to say that I'm not upset that the judge was able to find compassion toward Kyle Rittenhouse. I'm upset that there's not enough compassion for everyone else. Because every single person who stands on trial is somebody's child. And I'm upset that we couldn't find that measure of empathy when the defendant is a black teenager. And I'm upset that we hear studies about the adultification of black children in America. And the way that when we don't deal with history, when we don't reckon with the reality, when we run away and escape in the other direction, like Yaakov tried to, we treat black children as though they are an intimidation and a threat. I'm upset about the story about the black children in Rutherford County, Tennessee, who some of you might have read about a couple of weeks ago. A sixth grader and two fourth graders and a third grade girl in pigtails who were arrested by law enforcement and jailed on made up charges. And they were held in jail and they were traumatized. And the adults who violated their rights by doing so are all still in positions of power. And when the journalists did an assessment to try to expose the story and tell what happened, they found that children in this county, black children, had been wrongly arrested somewhere between 500 and 1,500 times. And every single one of those children, scarred for life, criminalized, told that their lives have no value. This is what happens when history remains unresolved when we run away from the confrontation and instead we try to just stay safe, find another way into town. We know about the dramatic reality of the vastly unequal distribution of wealth in this country, which has been in every way exacerbated by the pandemic. The, the Center of American Progress recently put out a report that said that black households today have a fraction of the wealth of white households, which leads them in a much more precarious position when a crisis strikes and they have so few economic opportunities. And they explain that the persistent black-white wealth gap is not an accident, but rather it is the result of centuries, centuries of federal and state policies that have systematically failed have systematically facilitated the deprivation of black Americans from the brutal exploitation of Africans who were enslaved in this country to the sy systematic oppression 
in the Jim Crow South, to today's institutionalized racism, which has seeped into every corner of life in this country. We know now, and we understood that Faulkner was right when he said that the past is not dead and buried, it's very much alive. A and we also know that it's not only black Americans who feel vulnerable and wrong. You poke your head into any school board meeting that's happening around the country today, and you will see a sense among a growing number of white people in our country that they too feel profoundly aggrieved. The past is not dead and buried, it's very much alive. I wonder what would have happened to Yaakov had he skipped town once again and tried not to reckon with the damage that he did when he harmed Esau so many years before. What we need now is a culture shift. We need a spiritual shift. We need moral culpability and a willingness to make amends. We need the sense that the only way that any of us will achieve liberation, any of us, is by working together toward collective liberation. That only when there is a thriving black future in this country will there be a thriving future for anyone in this country. In order to come to that reality, we need to stop trying to skip town and instead turn and face the reality and reckon with the, with the mistakes of the past and the present and do everything in our power to try to make amends. After Yaakov encounters Esav and he survives, the text tells us, Vayavo Yaakov Shalem Ir Shechem. Yaakov arrived Shalem in the city of Shechem. He, he arrived whole. How can he say that he arrived whole? He's bruised, he's broken. But Rashi says he's Shalem Begufo. He's whole in body. He's Shalem Bemamo No, even though he just gave so much of his money away, he still has everything he needs. And he's Shalem Torato. His Torah is whole. His being is whole. Because he has been able to make amends with a past in which he caused immense, immeasurable, irreparable pain to another human being. He is Shalem because he has reckoned with the past. You know, I said on Kol Nidre that every angel has a particular mission in our Jewish tradition. The angel that met Yaakov that night and wrestled with him throughout the long night, at least according to Rashbam, that angel was there to make sure that Yaakov did not avoid the past, did not try to escape the past. That is an, an angelic mission, to ensure that a person confronts the mistakes that we all have made so that healing can be made possible not only for Esav, the victim, but for Yaakov, the perpetrator, because he too deserved to have a future that was not weighed down by his worst mistake in his worst moments. And Yaakov walks away from that encounter with a limp. He's scarred, but he's not broken. And I ask us to think about this as we close now a week of incredible heartache. We too can be on a path toward healing like Yaakov, our ancestor. The blueprint has already been created for us. We just need to find the courage to follow it. Truth-telling, reckoning, reparations. Truth-telling, 
reckoning, reparations, truth-telling, reckoning, and reparations. This is the only way that we will find collective liberation. This is the only way that we will have a future. Shabbat shalom. Hi, it's Mayim Bialik, actor, neuroscientist, Ikar member, and lover of all things Jewish. Do you like what you're listening to? Please consider donating to Ikar so that we can continue creating more podcasts and fulfilling our mission of harnessing untapped energy in the Jewish community to reanimate Jewish life, embody moral courage, nurture the spirit, and work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Why don't you visit our website at ikar-la.org and give today.